Oh, he's, I just broke my favorite glass. Oh, poor, okay, I think we started. Um, go ahead and you start, and I'll see if he says we go live. All right, Gamel. Uh, gather, walk, camel, foot. Always the root, as Charlie says, always read this one before reading the Bible. 17. I do good. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, who curse and who stray from your command. Remove from me the scorn and contempt, for I kept your statutes. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsel. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we got that, and let's see here. We can go to this day in Christian history, 4 July. 4 July. Yeah, no, it's not. Today well, must be the 1st first. First, first of July. 4 July is Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Which, by the way, on, and now I lost my page being, hang on, 1 July. Okay. Um, 4 July, Sunday. 3 July, Trump will be in Sarasota. Yes. Okay. July 1st, some go to Hawaii for more than the scenery. Titus Cohn was converted as at a Charles Finney revival in western New York State. After graduating from seminary in 1834, he went as a missionary to Hilo, Hawaii, then known as the Sandwich Islands. Having a burning desire to bring revival to Hawaii, he applied himself vigorously to learning the native languages of Kao and Puna, and by 1836, he was fluent enough to preach in both. That's amazing. Kwan's Official responsibility was to train teachers and oversee about two dozen schools. But Titus Kwan's vision went far beyond teacher training. His prayer was that Hawaiians would come to Christ, and he determined to take the gospel directly to the people himself. <clears throat> In November 1836, he gave his students a long Christmas vacation and went on a walking tour of the island, ostensibly to visit the schools for which he was responsible. Each time he came to a village, he preached. As he had hoped, crowds of people gathered to hear him, and he was able to preach in three to five villages a day. When Kwan, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce this guy's name, anyway, when he reached the Puna region, large crowds gathered to hear him. In the largest city, he preached ten times in two days. Many wept as they came to understand that Christ had paid the penalty for their sins on the cross. Each time Kwan visited his I'm sorry, finished his message, the crowds, instead of leaving, would follow him to the house where he was staying. They would crowd in, hanging on his every word, until the house could hold no more. At eleven at night, he would insist that everyone go home, but they would be back as soon as the cock rode the next morning. A particularly stunning conversion in Puna was that of the high priest of the volcano. In addition to the idolatry, drunkenness, and adultery associated with his priesthood, he was also a murderer. Yet upon his conversion, he became a man filled with, filled with zeal for God. His sister, the high priestess of the volcano, though initially hostile to the gospel, put her faith in Christ after seeing the change in her brother. When Koan returned home to Hilo after a month, he found a heightened interest in the way of salvation. People who had heard him preach in their villages in Kao and Puna now came to Hilo to hear more. In some cases, whole villages would come. 
The population of Hilo grew to 10,000 as people moved there just to hear him preach. On Sundays, the 200 by 85 foot building would be packed with hundreds more listening outside. The Hawaiians decided on their own that they needed a bigger church and in three weeks built a building large enough to hold 2,000. On one occasion, a young man came intending to disrupt the service by making people laugh during the prayers. Instead, he suddenly fell unconscious and had to be carried out. Several, several hours later, when he came to, he confessed his sin. Before long, he became a member of the church he had tried to disrupt. A year into the revival, tragedy struck. A tidal wave hit the island during an evening prayer service. About 200 were swept out to sea. Only 13 drowned, but the survivors lost almost all of their possessions. Yet, after the tidal wave, the church continued to grow. In spite of thousands of conversions in 1836 and 1837, the church's membership didn't grow until 1838 and 1839. The slow growth reflected a flaw in missionary Cohn's methodology, not disinterest on the part of the converts. Cohn would record the date of each conversion and then wait months before recontacting the person to ascertain if the conversion was real. Only then would the person be invited to join the church. It wasn't until July 1st, 1838, the first converts were finally baptized and received into the church. On that stirring day, 1,705 were baptized. By 1853, 56,000 of the 71,000 native Hawaiians were professing Christians. Unbelievable. Titus Kwan's zeal for reaching the Hawaiians for Christ influenced everything he did. Do you have zeal for seeing those around you come to Christ? What can we learn from Titus Cohen's life to help us reach our friends and relatives for Christ? And they cite Romans 10, 14. How can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? So I read uh, another uh, commentary on the, at the time, it was known as the Sandwich Islands. Uh, it was as if he stepped into a place that was ready for the gospel. They were They were absolutely sick of the idolatry in their own lives they'd come to that point and the guy just showed up and it was it was just right. the right person at the right time with the right circumstances so this morning i'm reading this i'm just going to do the, the first few sentences read this is about hawaii okay and this is about how they were would pray and he goes uh, alice uh, Sunna, uh recounts the story of how hawaiian people would sit outside their temples for a lengthy amount of time preparing themselves to enter in even after entering, they would creep to the altar to offer their prayers. Afterwards, they would sit outside for a long time their prayers. And then, missionaries sometimes consider their prayers odd because they would say a quick prayer, amen, and let's do our thing. So they sounded like they were ripe for conversion. The gospel. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, the Lord, he plans everything according yeah. to his wisdom. We see yeah. that every day of our lives if we just open our eyes and look around us. Okay, we are in, uh, I don't, oh, we got open in prayer. We do. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come here and to, uh, to uh, just come into your presence and to share the word. And it's a precious word, Lord. We're very thankful for it. And we're thankful for the fact that we can share it openly and we're still allowed to stream live. I don't know when that's going to end, but until that day, we're very thankful for the opportunity to do so. And uh, Lord, you've given us freedom in this land, which is slowly being whittled away, but we're we're not uh, through with it yet. So we thank you for the freedom we possess. And uh, as long as we have it, we'll continue to preach openly. And when we don't have it, we'll continue to preach in one way or another to get the word out. 
because uh, this is what you've called us to do. So we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can uh, study it freely, and we're just grateful for all the insights that you give us from your mind into the Holy Bible that we can look into. Thank you, Lord God. We pray that it'll be handled properly, and if not, that uh, you would alert us to anything that's said wrong. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in Ephesians. Yep, 3.14. Prayers for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his holy family in heaven and on earth derives his name. Was that 314 that you just read? What's that? Wait a minute. Yeah, I did. Sorry. Okay. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. I see what it is. This is covering chapter 4, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing no chapter 4, and I'm on 14. So, we're on 3. Okay, uh, yeah, we're in 3, but I didn't see a 4 anywhere, so I thought that I'm looking at 3, 4, 10. I'm saying, that's not the same verse. Somebody's torn a page out of my Bible, or I'm, you know, hallucinating or something. Okay, here we go. 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that odd? This thing was sitting right over that 4, and I could not figure out what was going on. All right. Oh. Waking up now, Charlie. Okay, let's see. I've got some... Ah, don't worry about it. We'll get that later. Um, this takes us right back. This is comments on 314. This takes us right back to verse 3-1, which said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and then from prior to that, from verse 211 to 222, there was a discussion on how the Gentiles had become partakers with the Jews in the commonwealth of Israel, and were, like them, being built up into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place, as it said, of God in the Spirit. Immediately after those words came his first for this reason. After that, he wrote from 3.2 until 3.13 about how this was previously a mystery which was now revealed through him. He is the one that is revealing the mystery of the church that Gentiles are being brought into it, something nobody would have ever thought before. And with that parenthetical thought now complete, we are given the second for this reason. Okay? What's the matter? Oh, I'm not worried about that. We can get Normal, that later. Okay. okay. As an emphasis as to how overwhelming it is that he has been granted this high honor, Paul says, I bow my knees. The use of these words show a solemn type of prayer which indicates great humility while being awed at the work of God. It is certain that Paul wasn't bowing his knees as he either dictated the letter to a scribe or wrote the words out himself. Therefore, the term is used in the place of emotion or act. Okay, everybody got that? He's writing what he would be doing if he was actually doing it. So when the Bible says, I bow my knees, he's talking about what he would do when he's bowing his knees. Okay, obviously he's sitting there either dictating to a scribe or he's writing out an epistle, so he's not stopping and bowing his knees. So... I know that doesn't sound important, but sometimes you read commentaries that are not quite uh, in line with what is going on. You have to think those things through. Uh, from this verse, some scholars conclude that kneeling is, quote, the usual and proper posture of prayer is to kneel. It is posture which indicates reverence and should therefore be assumed when we come before God. It has been an unhappy thing that the custom of kneeling in public worship has ever been departed from in the Christian churches. That's Albert Barnes. There's no reason at all to come to this unfounded conclusion. I love Albert Barnes. I very 
rarely disagree with the guy, but I, when I read that, I was actually shocked enough where I had to include the quote in there. But, you know what? Churches divide over things like that. We should be not, uh, kneeling when we're praying. We should be standing up when we're praying. We should have our heads down when we're praying. We should, there's 10,000 different things that people think we should do that the Bible never says what we should do. It doesn't in any way, shape, or form indicate how we are to pray. Paul says to pray continuously, without ceasing, continuously. He says it in several different ways. So how can you pray continuously if you're driving your car and bowing your head and kneeling? You can't. That is a goofy way of looking at your your responsibility in your church. It's a goofy way of, of handling the issues that come before you in life is to say that we should do this when the Bible doesn't say it. And so I just, I had to include that in there. And like I said, there are people that we should have those little kneel things down at the bottom of the pew that you pull forward and you got to use those. The what? Yeah, I grew up with them too. You know, there's all kinds of things. People take their personal pet peeves and they insert them into their theology. And that is what they will continue to teach all their lives. And it's not sound to do that. So um, I, as much as I love Albert Barnes, I I disagree with that statement. Okay, there's no reason at all to come to that conclusion. Aren't those kneelers like just too soft if we're supposed to be kneeling? Yes, on? they're too soft, and then you lose your respect for God because you're on a soft pad, so you right. need to get rid of the soft pads, and you need to do it on the hard wood. Okay, there's always something that somebody's going to say uh, needs to be done. That's just not responsible theology. Paul elsewhere writes that, oh, here it is. We are to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It is without a doubt that he did not expect the, sta- the saints to stay on their knees at all times and simply pray their life away in that position. That is unreasonable to even think that that's what he meant. Rather, there are different positions one will assume at different times. One may pray as if speaking to God as a friend while driving in his car. The same person may stand atop a mountain and raise his hands in prayer of exultation at the majesty of God, shouting out with joy at the marvel that he beholds. He may fall on his knees in awe and in acknowledgement of his unworthiness of such a high honor being bestowed upon him as Paul is writing about doing right here, right now. Or he may fall flat on his face in a prayer of absolute mourning, anguish, or pain. Paul's use of I bow my knees reflects his overwhelmed state at what has been granted to him and the immense implications of what it means that the Gentiles will also share in the blessings of what God has done through Jesus Christ. He finished, you know, when I was uh, driving around the States in 2010, I was in South Carolina. Very nice people I stayed with. But they were in church. The women all wore bonnets. And they had no music. Music wasn't allowed. And they only sang a cappella. And they only sang the Psalms of David a cappella. That was it. It was a Scottish Reformed Presbyterian church. And so that was the only way that you were to worship God. You're not to do it in any other way, and anything else is wrong. Okay. And so, so much for Isaac Watts, so much for uh, what's the modern guy, Michael. Um, he does all the modern music, Michael, whatever. Anyway, yeah. what? Yeah, Michael W. Smith. Thank you. You know, you just. You worship the Lord in the way that you believe is honoring of him, as long as it's not contrary to the Bible, okay? When Isaac Watts came out, and he's the standard now for hymns. If you have a hymnal, his will be in the most prominent positions because his words are very, very noted and they're remembered. And, you know, like when I survey the wondrous cross, okay, well, the reason why I brought up 
uh, Isaac Watts and then Michael W. Smith is he sang that song that was written by Isaac Watts. Okay, so when Isaac Watts started writing his songs, he had everybody upset because the the congregations that at that time were doing that. They were singing only the Psalms and they thought it was almost heretical that he would write hymns. It was, you know, just a terrible thing. And now, like I said, he's the standard. So we take our own pet peeves, our own things that we think should be done, and we insert them into other people's business. That's not the way to do those things. So um, Paul's use of I bow my knees reflects his overwhelmed state at what had been granted to him and the immense implications of what it means that the Gentiles will also share in the blessings of what God has done through Jesus Christ. He finishes the verse with, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His overwhelmed prayer of what he has written about is directed to the first person of the Godhead. He has chosen this form of address because it is through Jesus that the Father-Son relationship is made for us. As he is the Father of Christ, we now too share in the Sonship of the Father because of Christ. For this reason, the prayer is made directly to him. It is Christ upon whom the household of God is erected, a household of which we are a part. Now, having said that, I just talked about the father-son relationship. Hello, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, that's my mom. I, I couldn't tell with the light shining behind her, so I realized that. That was her halo. That was her halo, yeah, radiating around her as she graced us with her tardy presence. Um, so we, um, uh, I was talking with my friend in Canada. We were emailing before class back and forth here. And um, uh, I was talking about the Nephilim videos, and he was talking about somebody that he used to listen to, or I guess he still does, that um, uh, has the view on the Nephilim that it's angels. And I obviously hold to the other view, that it's speaking of human beings, okay? And once again, we're talking about sonship here, and you become a son of God by faith in what God has promised, okay? And that is from the very first page of the Bible all the way through. The Nephilim of uh, Genesis 6 is not angels sleeping with human beings. It is the people that are at em uh, enmity with that premise. The sons of God are those that believe the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God will send a redeemer, that God will restore all things. And at that time, they have very little information about the big picture. That has been slowly given to us over the past many, many millennia. But to be a son of God is to be a believer in the promise of God. And now that he has been revealed, Jesus Christ, the only way that you're going to be a son of God is through faith in the revealed Messiah. The people before his coming were sons of God believing in his coming. Job, for example, he was one of the sons of God in, Gen in Job 1 verse 6. The sons of God came before, uh, you know, anyway, you know the verse. So, uh, uh, that is who the sons of God are. It's not anything else. It's not angels and none of that stuff, okay? Just so you get your theology right, or at least if you're uh, listening to me, I believe that that is the correct interpretation of it. And the New Testament fully bears that out because the term son of God is used like 10 billion times in the New Testament, and it's always building upon what was given back in the Old Testament. Okay, so there you go with that. That's just my little plug for the uh, proper view of the Nephilim. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, let's see here, uh, our father, sonship relationship. Yes, as he is the father of Christ, I'll read that again. We now, too, share in the sonship of the father because of Christ.
For this reason, the prayer is made directly to him, through Christ, to God the Father. It is Christ upon whom the household of God is erected. It is a household of which we are a part. This prayer does not in any way negate praying to or through Christ, as is seen elsewhere in the New Testament. Who prays directly to Christ? Anybody remember somebody that prays directly to Christ? Because I get this question a lot. What's that? It's everybody. Well, no, I'm, I'm, you, people will pray through Christ to God the Father. Right. Okay, but who in the New Testament prays directly to Jesus? Jesus. Yeah, oh. can you think of anybody? No. Okay, the name is Stephen, the first martyr. Uh, the very last words that he said were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Okay, so there you go. It is not incorrect to pray directly to Jesus. It is not incorrect in any way. Well, I, I get this question a lot. Oh, sure. Then I get a lot of people that say, you should never do that. Your prayer is to be, and they pick one thing out of Ephesians 3.19 or something, and they say, you've got to pray to God the Father through Jesus, and I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Each of us has the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, some people do pray to the Holy Spirit, right. and some people sing songs to the Holy Spirit. That is really not found in Scripture. We can include him in our prayers, as Paul does in his greetings and, uh, uh, you know, final salutations in there. He'll say in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, etc. But I can't think of any time where somebody prays directly to the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it's incorrect because the Holy Spirit is God, but, you know, it, there is a precedent for praying to Jesus. Right. Okay. And that's... He says nobody comes to but through him. But once again, he, that's going to the Father. Don't don't mix apples and oranges. I'm talking about directly to Jesus without involving anybody else. There okay, is precedent okay, in Scripture, uh -huh. and so there is nothing wrong with doing it. That's my point there. Okay. I, okay, yes, I go ahead. Yeah. Peter would have drowned if he tried to bow on these. Oh, absolutely. And then he prayed directly to the Lord. Lord save. Lord me. save me, Peter. That's right. Peter prayed directly to Jesus, Lord, save me. And he said if he had bowed his knees, he would have drowned. So that's that's correct. That's one. Actually, his knees may have already been under the water. He may have may have made himself more buoyant. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure how that would have worked. Anyway, there you go. But there is precedent in the Bible for praying directly to Jesus. That's my point. I don't want to mix any apples or oranges with any other type of prayer that we can talk about. And because I get these questions all the time, and I always type them up, and I never save them. And unfortunately, if I did, I'd have all of this information. And I could say, let me just send that to that person. I don't do that, and so I end up wasting a lot of my own time by not saving questions like that. And But yes, the answer is you may pray to Jesus directly and not include any other member of the Godhead if you wish. Right. He is God, fully God, and you can pray to him. Okay. It's a trinity, so that means that they're born. The, they're all God. There's so, one like, God. You know, There's only one God. That's right. Okay, so um, let's see here. However, the terminology of direct the direction of our prayers should be based on the substance of the prayers. The substance of Paul's words of this verse are specifically shaped to be addressed to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of what they are referring to. And that's why he does that. And if you go through and just make notes, go. it'll take you, you know, five or six hours of study, but you can read through the whole set of epistles from Romans 1 all the way through Jude, and you can write down every single instance of prayer that somebody mentions. I pray or pray to or where it's said like that, and you will find out a, a, a well-rounded uh, scope of how to pray. You, and you could include Acts too, even though Acts is descriptive, it's not prescribing anything. You could at least see what people did, and so you can say, 
they did that so I know it's not wrong to do it. I wouldn't use it as a prescriptive thing like, you know, Lord Jesus uh, received my spirit, whatever. But, uh, and that was making a point, by the way, when he did that. Why did Stephen say that? What, what was the precedent that he was making? Does anybody, has anybody ever read the Old Testament and realized what Stephen was doing when he said, Lord Jesus, receive my, my, my spirit? He, and then after that, he said, Lord, do not hold this against them. Do not hold it to their account. Why did he do that? Now, now I'm, go back to the Old Testament. The last person who died in the Old Testament, the last martyr, was stoned. Uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, that Jesus refers to. Now, it's in the book of Chronicles, but actually Chronicles, it's the last person to have been martyred in the Old Testament. He said, the Lord hold you to account for this. And in the New Testament, Stephen, the first martyr, says, do not hold them to account for it. So they were making a theological point that in Christ, anything can be forgiven. Okay, so that's why that's the way it is. But he prayed to Jesus when he did that. In the Old Testament, he prayed to Jehovah when he did that. So you see what's going on? They're saying that Jesus is anybody? God, thank you. Okay, that's why that is the way it is. Okay, go back and find that if you want, and then we can read it. Um, I'm not going to look for it, but if you find it, Burke, just shout it out. Oh, okay, I thought you were. Okay, anyway, life application. Let's not get legalistic. In our prayer life, 315. Jim, 315. That's okay. He's over there doing stuff. You asked me to look it up. No? Okay. From whom this whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Yeah, this one says a little different. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So a little bit different, but not much. Okay. All you need to do is just go to Bible Gateway and type in the name Zechariah. And then look in two Chronicles and that'll come right up. That's all. Yes, two Chronicles. Um, yes. Okay. 315. In this verse, an immediate question arises is from whom? Okay. I'll read this. I'm going to read uh, 14 and 15 together. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Okay. So is from whom speaking of the father or Jesus? Here's the previous verse. I just read it to you. For this reason, I bow my name to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There's a subtle play on words in the Greek. Father is pater, and the word rendered as family is patria. This may indicate Paul's connection between the two. However, it is through Christ that sonship is realized. He is the Son of God, and through him we are included as sons. Thus, the naming of the family does seem more likely to be from Christ. If so, the play on words is showing the connection to Christ, the Son of the Father, and to the family who derives its name from Christ as well. It's hard to be dogmatic, though. Either way, Jesus Christ is fully God, and so it doesn't change the overall intent of what is being said, okay? People argue over these things, and you'll get one scholar that's adamant that he's speaking about Jesus, and obviously Jesus is the nearest antecedent. Read it again. 3.14 says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom? Well, he's the nearest antecedent, but because he's being uh, stated in relation to the Father, then it still could be the Father. It's a little confusing, but I would go with Christ that he is speaking from whom the whole family of the family in heaven and earth is named. Okay, that would be my guess, but I'm not going to be dogmatic over it, okay? 
Um, either way, Jesus Christ is fully God, and so it doesn't change the overall intent of what is being said. Whether from God, be it Father or Son, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What this means is that all of the saints, alive now or having passed on, share in the same family privileges. Everybody shares in the same privileges. This includes Jew and Gentile, male and female, and without distinction to color, creed, or culture. We would be doing ourselves a great deal of plus and benefit and uh, uh, saving a lot of grief and a lot of death if we would realize that in this nation once again. Then we would stop dividing people the way that are not Trump, but the president before Trump initiated and then what our current president is pushing to an extreme that is almost unimaginable, dividing this nation by color, by different ethnic groups, instead of saying we are one nation. And it, the reason why we are one nation and the reason why our, our monetary system and everything has been based on the fact that we are one is because the original founding fathers of this nation were Christians, and they understood that there is one family. Now, nobody denies that there was slavery in America. Well, nobody denies that there was slavery in the Bible as well. That's a completely separate issue. But we are one human species. And that is where we get, or the Bible is where we get that information. Other cultures and other political institutions, such as communism, are based on the evolutionary model. We're greater than they are, and therefore we can kill millions of people without any compunction because it is survival of the fittest, okay? That is not the way that this nation is set up, but that is the way that this nation is heading very quickly. And if you want to see a bloodbath in the making, you just get away from the Christian model in this country, and you're going to find it. It's going to come, okay? But this is what the world is heading into, because the world is rejecting this book. They're rejecting the God of this book and the God that created all people. Female, without uh, male, female, and without distinction to color, creed, or culture. Any and all who have called on Jesus are brought into the family of God through the work of Christ and are so named. So that's going to be pretty soon one of the only things in the entire world that unites everybody is the Christian message. It will no longer be any single nation. It will no longer be any uh, philosophy. It will be a divided world that says we're united when in fact their uniting is based on complete division, whereas in the Christian, the division in the people becomes one uniting factor. It's a completely different way of looking at things, and that's the way we have been modeled in this nation for a long time, and we're losing it. Anyway, a good example of this is the bringing in of Ephraim and Manasseh as co-equals into the family of Jacob, as is recorded in Genesis 48. Let me take you back there, and I'll read you that very quickly. Genesis chapter 48. Wow, that's way back in the Bible. I'm telling you what, that's way back there. Genesis 48, and it says there in um, 48, that's 49. I almost did the same thing again. Genesis 48, 5. And now you two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. I'll go on a little bit. Your offspring with whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I, was, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. 
And then after that, it follows in with the blessing of Jacob upon those two sons. So that's an example of bringing Ephraim and Manasseh as co-equals into the family of Jacob. All right. Such is true with any who are in Christ. They are named by God as family members because of his work. That's how it works there. Life application. Although we must speak against heretical doctrine, and correcting bad doctrine is also necessary as a part of our allegiance to the Lord, we need to remember that those who are truly saved are members of our one family. So let us endeavor, if possible, to treat them as such. I, it's very hard. I was driving down the road today, and I was thinking about somebody that teaches a heretical doctrine. And was it, it might have been last night after we left dinner. We went out to uh, dinner last night. It might have been last night. I was, I was just thinking about this guy. I'm so angry at him because he might be a saved guy. He probably is but he teaches very, very poor doctrine. And it makes me angry because I was saying to myself, Lord, we got this precious word that you've given us, this gift, and we neglect it. We abuse it in our sermons. We treat it, you know, almost spitefully in order to get congregants into a church, in order to make money, in order to get power and whatever. And it just, it, it eats me up. The most important thing that we can do is take this word and treat it properly. I don't know what got me on that. I was just driving, and I suddenly thought of it, and I just thought, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth the fame. It's not worth the fortune. It's not worth whatever you're gaining by promoting a view of the Bible that is not in line with the Bible. Anyway, um, did you find it? No. I just no, okay. Um, here, let me, I'm going to look really quickly, because I just want to read those as an example. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, this will take just one minute. I'm sorry to divert from the class, but once I get something in my mind, I'd rather just do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to, um, uh, we're going to go back, 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 back. Whoops. Uh, delete. Why isn't that working? Oh, yes, it did. Okay. So we're going to write in Z-E-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. -E okay. And then that's going to take us to um, uh, Kings of Israel, two Kings, one Chronicles, two Chronicles. Is good. Come on, Charlie. We've got to get down to two Chronicles and it's a Zechariah 24. Um, yeah, here it is, 2 Chronicles 24. So we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 24 and scroll down, and it says there in, uh, um, I'm just going to start with verse 15. I'm going to read the whole, whole little section. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old. He died older than Moses when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and uh, where was it? And the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at, that com at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, look on it and repay. Okay, that's the last martyr recorded in the Old Testament. And then if you go to Acts 7, I'll take you there. And this is Stephan, and at the very end of it, it says here, 
Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God does not have parts, okay? God is spirit. The right hand of God means that he is in the full authority, the position of authority. That's what, when you read the right hand of God, it is speaking of the position of authority. Jesus Christ has all the authority of God. Okay, so we'll go on. Standing at the right hand of God, uh, where was I? And said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Just like the last martyr got stoned, this guy got stoned. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephan as he was calling on God and saying, the words on God are inserted there. It doesn't say that. It just simply says, as he was calling on and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's making up, the Bible is making a one-to-one -one comparison with Jehovah of the Old Testament, Jesus in the New. That's why those verses are in there like that. Receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He just said, Lord, see and repay the last guy. Now, Stephen says exactly the opposite. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So you see what's going on as the Bible is showing us these different uh, aspects of what is going on in redemptive history. Okay, the law cannot save, Christ can save. The law demands uh, not forgiveness, Christ demands forgiveness, etc. Well, it doesn't demand, but I mean, it, it calls for forgiveness. It's still up to the person to uh, call out for it. But you're seeing all of that going on, just a couple of short passages. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. Okay, so we are in 16. 16, yes. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your being. Okay, different. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, the verse should be considered with the previous verses for context, so I'll read them all. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the spirit in the inner man. The words that he would grant you, Paul's words, are speaking of God the Father mentioned in verse 14. There is a chiastic structure to the words of these verses, which seems to show that from whom of verse 15 is surely speaking of Christ. So here's how it goes. Let me see if I can write this out for you. It's Father. Okay. And then you have Christ. I was going to say Chris, that's not it. Got to add the T on there. And then from whom? All right. And then it turns around and it says that he, he, it doesn't turn around. It's This is actually more a parallelism than a chiasm. Riches of his glory, R-I-C-H-E-S of his glory. And then it says, right here, strengthen with his might. S-T, I'm just going to write strengthen to save time. S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-E-N-E-D. Okay. 
there. I hope I spelled that right. Okay, strengthened, and oh, and then one more through his spirit, through through his spirit. Okay, so you can kind of see the the pattern that's going on there. S P R I, and I'm sorry, I ran out of space. That wasn't very professional of me, but anyway, um, this clues us into who Paul is referring to in each instance, and so his prayer is a concern that the Father would grant something specific to those in Ephesus, and thus all who are the recipients of this epistle throughout all the ages. It includes all of us here. Okay, his next words, according to the riches of his glory, have a strong emphasis in them. They're speaking of what God has done through Christ. This term is used in the same way in Philippians chapter 4, where he says this, Philippians 4, verse 19. It says, Philippians 4, verse 19. 13, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Okay, so we got that. And then, for this, hang on a second here. Uh, these riches of his glory are what can be seen through his workings in and through Christ, just as such riches can be seen through the physical creation. When we ponder the many things which God has done, we are pondering the riches of his glory. Okay, we were talking earlier about Mount St. Helens exploding. Well, you can see the riches of his glory even in that because, I mean, it's just a little volcano. If you think of it on the size of uh, one sunspot that goes off, the power is insignificant. But when you're standing right next to Mount St. Helens and it goes off, you see a lot of power. And if you compare the power that we see here, like a lightning bolt, which is so powerful and it, it shocks us, and you compare that to, you know, Mount St. Helens, it's nothing. Because Mount St. Helens isn't just blowing up, it's also developing its own system with lots of lightning. And then you compare that to something else that goes on in the universe and it seems so insignificant. So if you think about what God is doing, if we're scared and we think how powerful is a lightning bolt, and then we look at the magnificent of what God has done in other parts of creation, we can see how amazing God is. Anyway, um, the riches of his glory, they are the open and visible manifestations of what he does to express himself. Hang on a second here, to express himself. And so Paul prays that these riches will be granted to his audience in order, as it says, to be strengthened with might. Again, this is a reference to the work of Christ. It is what was seen in his work, and it is that which is available through understanding the implications of that work. Christ Christ prevailed over the law, over the horror of the cross, and over death itself. He never failed to please the Father in all ways. This is the strengthening that is being petitioned for us by Paul as he asks that it come through his Spirit in the inner man. He has now introduced the third member of the Godhead into Scripture once again. The Spirit of God is what will provide to us the strength which Christ possessed as we yield to God. Our inner man will be built up and strengthened as we rely wholly on God to direct us. This will only come about as we yield to him through actions such as prayer, praise, study of the word, fellowship, and the like. But it is a process which can occur as we attempt to be more like Christ. Now, the reason why I said that, it can only occur in those ways. It will never occur by going to a church that speaks in tongues where you walk in and somebody that has never read the word, doesn't know anything about the word of God, has never spent any time fellowshipping with Christians and suddenly starts speaking in tongues. You know that that is a false sign. There's no doubt about it. Why? Because in the Bible, and I love to repeat this because I want people to remember it. 
in the Bible, when Paul writes, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it is in the passive tense. It is passive. It is not active. We are given the Spirit as we yield to God, as we yield to the Spirit. Okay? And as I've said before, when you are married, you will never get more married than the day that you are married. It will never happen. You are as married. My son got married a couple weeks ago. He's never going to get more married. But he can close himself off from his wife, and that could be his choice, or he can open himself up to his wife. And as he opens himself up to her, she will get more of him. And as she opens herself up to him, he will get more of her. Okay, that's the way it is with God. When we open ourselves up to God, and there's a few ways that we can do it, he will get more of us. Okay. We will never get more of the Spirit ever than we have right now, okay? But He can get more of us. And when that happens, we are filled with Him, okay? We get it through prayer, praise, study of the Word, fellowship, and the like. And I would put, of all of those, I would put praise and study of the Word at the top. When we praise God, He is pleased by our actions of praising Him because that's what we were created to do was to praise God. Then the other thing that we are showing obedience to is wanting to know him. If we're not following, you know, we can go out and we can be a, uh, a uh, person that, what do you call it, an archaeologist or a person that studies trees or something. And we can learn all about trees and how magnificent they are. And if we don't give God the credit for that, we are not pleasing God in the slightest. But if we do like, um, what is it, uh, answer, not answers in Genesis, is Genesis history. I'd love to cite the guy, Del Tackett. He did those series uh, on YouTube. You can go watch them. Very good. We watched two of them last night. He takes everything from the perspective that God has done it, and he is revealing himself through what he has done. And when you do that, when you give God the credit for those things, you will be filled with the Spirit of God more and more. And that is the filling of the Spirit, is keeping God in everything that you, would, you do in your life. You will get more of the Spirit, and you will be filled more and more by those things. So I would say that, and the main way of doing that, I was got off on a tangent there. Uh, you're including God in your study of his creation. You're including God in your study of who he is. But when you read scripture, you are directly including God in your study of who he is as he has specifically revealed himself. You can see God in how he has generally revealed himself through the tree or through the uh, you know, the nitrogen cycle or through anything like that. That is a general revelation of himself. God, the things you have done are so wonderful. I'm so pleased with it. And you're filled with the spirit. But when you study his word, I think that that is probably along with praising God, the, the point that God is the highest in his pl uh, pleasure of you, because you are saying, I want to know him intimately as he has specifically revealed himself through redemptive history. And you're only going to find that in one place. And it's in this book right here. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're not going to go to a church and start rolling around on the ground and speaking in tongues and being any closer to knowledge of God at all. None. But when you read this word and when you study this word, I know that God is pleased with you. He has pleasure in that, just as he does when you praise him. And I'm pretty sure that, that somewhere in there, the grease is the gratitude. The what? Grease. Yeah, gratitude. Yeah, absolutely right. Gratitude. Being grateful for what God has displayed. Being grateful. And ingratitude, a spirit of ingratitude, almost nothing can overcome that. When you do something good for somebody and they are not uh, thankful for it, there's nowhere you can go with it. 
you can give them more stuff. And if they're an ungrateful person, it goes nowhere. But when they're grateful, you have that fellowship. Now, I've helped you. You're, you're blessing me with your thanks. That's all God. You know, he doesn't need anything from us. No. He's self-sufficient. But he created us for a reason. And the reason why he created us is so that we can fellowship with him, so that we can understand who he is, and so that we can be grateful to him for the life he's given us and for the, you know, just the joy of fellowshipping with him. So you're absolutely right. Gratitude is the grease of all of that. So anyway, um, uh, this same sentiment, uh, let me read the last sentence again. This will only come about as we yield to him through such actions as prayer, praise, study of the word, fellowship, and things like that. It's not going to come in any other way. I'm sorry, if you are trying to pursue God outside of the ways that he wants you to pursue him, you're doing no good at all, okay? But it is a process which can occur as we attempt to be more like Christ. This same sentiment is reflected in Paul's words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says there, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, there's 16 chapters, so I got a couple more pages there, and then we get to chapter 4, and 16 through 18 says, where are we? Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the temporary things which are seen are temporary. Or I'm sorry, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Life application. Though we will never be perfect in this life, we should strive always to become more Christ-like at all times. I know that's hard. I fail every day and I go to bed and I think, Lord, I sure blew it in that point. I sure blew it in that point, you know. But it's, it should be our goal to be more like Christ all the time. Let us ever pursue the magnificence of what God did through Christ by applying his word to our lives. You know, um, I, I won't give away the country or the person because I don't want to say anything without permission, but um, I got an email from a person, again, I think it was this morning, there's 24-hour difference, so it might have been yesterday morning, anyway, um, and this individual is in a church that uh, preaches the prosperity gospel, and they're always saying, make sure you read your Bible, and uh, this person was asking, you know, I see a conflict here because, you know, they're, they're saying to read your Bible, which makes it sound like I should be attending this church, but then everything they say is out of context, you know, and uh, the uh, pastor, when this individual, I'm trying to say this individual, so I don't even give it away if it's a guy or a girl, but um, uh, went up to the uh, pastor and asked about the uh, situation, and uh, he said, well, do not judge, and I said, that is a trap. When you quote that verse, when somebody quotes that verse to you, because liberals love to do they that do. to conservatives, they quote that, they put it on Facebook, and that is a trap to get you to shut up. That has nothing to do with reality. And in fact, in the same paragraph that he says, do not judge, he does what? He makes a judgment. Do not throw your pearls to the swine. Okay, so it's, the context is wrong, but it's easy to say, and it's easy to shut people up. And I said, the fact that these people are telling you to read their Bible doesn't mean anything because I guarantee you that nobody is reading their Bible. If they are believing in a prosperity gospel, then they haven't read their Bible because the Bible tells you you're going to have trouble in this world. You're going to have pains. You're going to have sorrows. 
King David, the beloved of the Lord, did what in his last couple years of life? Suffered. He suffered. And he didn't just suffer like you and me might suffer. He was cold all the time. All the time. Even with blankets on top of him, he was cold. And the Lord loved him. You know, I, I don't understand how people can pick this book up and come up with the, the thinking that they do. And so they don't pick up this book. They just make stuff up and they know a couple of cliche verses. And that is how they conduct their theology. And I feel very bad for this person. Uh, you know, I don't want to tell him or her to leave the church. That's not my business. But my my thing is I would leave that church two seconds after. I, I would just Point go. Point that person to where. Well, you know, I'm not over there. I can't tell them where to go. I mean, I don't know any other congregation. Well, yeah. Oh, obviously, th mm -hmm. that person knows this. Because okay, I get emails all the time from him or her, okay? All the time. The doctrine is sound. But there is the conflict of, it might be the only church in the town. I don't know. I don't know the circumstances. All I know is that if it was me, I'd be like, I ain't going there anymore. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell them that because it might be the only church in the town. I don't ask those questions. I just answer what I'm asked. That's it. And But I feel miserable when I read things like that in emails at 3 o'clock in the morning. I wake up and I check the emails and I got something like that. And I think, you know, what a sad situation. Or I, I just somebody emailed me uh, this morning from Wales, and he said, and nobody would know who it is, so this doesn't matter, but he said, you know, there's nothing here, you know, there's nothing, there's there's no, you know, I hear this from people in Canada, there's nothing in Canada anymore where they can go, there might be a couple churches in the whole country that are decent, and it breaks my heart, what do you do when you've got no church, I mean, I just, I don't know, what do you do? I feel so bad for these people because they have a real hunger for the word. It's in them. They want to know this word, and they can't get it at the place that they're supposed to be getting it. That's heartbreaking. I, whatever. I, I, I'm not trying. I'm trying to be circumspect so I don't belittle anybody. I'm not trying to be a finger pointer to finger pointer at any church or anybody. But this is what I go through. Is I go through this conflict when people email me and they say I've got nowhere to go. I, I just, I don't know what I would do if, if I, you know, but if you're willing to just sit and read the Bible all day, at least you got that, and it's the most precious thing in the world, so whatever. Okay. Anyway, uh, 317, let's go on. Right, just to let you know, for a second there, I thought you were going gender PC. Uh, no, 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 I just don't want to give up something that somebody may know, like you may know this person, know you know what I mean? So I try to be very careful not to give away. Now, some people, I could talk about them, they're not, nobody's going to know who they are. I know that. But there are some people that you might know on Facebook, they, you know, and I don't want to yeah. do that. I don't want to embarrass okay. anybody. So that's why I do. But no, no gender PC Happy here. Happy to see you. Happy to hear you. Yes. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you belong rooted and established in love. Okay, it's very close. I'm not going to reread it. Again, context of the preceding verses is necessary to fully see Paul's intent that he would, so I'm going to read the whole thing, that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. In the preceding verse, he noted that we should be strengthened with might through his spirit. He now immediately returns to the second member of the Godhead, Christ. Paul asks that he may dwell in your hearts. Charles Ellicott notes that the indwelling of Christ is not a consequence of the gift of the Spirit. It is identical to it. This is supported by Jesus' words of John 14. Let me take you there. 
Okay, I'll read that again, what Ellicott said, because sometimes being really precise like this is important. He said, the indwelling of Christ is not a consequence of the gift of the Spirit. It is identical to it. And you might not think that way until you hear it, but then you say, you know, that is correct. So here we go, John 14, and then in verse 16, he says, I'll start in 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. In the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you orphans, and I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The indwelling of Christ is directly equated to the indwelling of the Spirit. There is no connecting particle in the Greek. This means that where the Spirit of God is, there also is Christ. That's Bengel's commentary. As this is received through faith, there is an article in the Greek of these words, diatis pistios, or through the faith. Thus, faith is the means of this occurrence. When we exercise faith, we are sealed with the Spirit of God, and we thus appropriate all that Christ offers. Once again, there is no second birthing of the Spirit. There is no being filled with the Spirit in some charismatic way that these people teach. It doesn't happen that way. I'll read this again. When we exercise faith, when we believe we are sealed with the Spirit of God, and we thus appropriate all that Christ offers, everything. Now it's up to us to take that and work with it, to grow in Christ, to learn, to study our Bible. It's not to go into a church and to say, I'm being filled with the Spirit this morning and doing something that is displeasing to God. That is not how it works. I'm sorry. The verse ends with the notion that this appropriation of the work of Christ is what will cause us to be rooted and grounded in love. Two separate metaphors are combined into this one thought. The first is that of a tree's roots, which bury deep into the soil. They hold the tree firm, but even more, they draw up the nutrients and water which the tree may live by. This is comparable to our own position in Christ. It is through him that we may draw up all of the riches of what God offers to his redeemed. The second metaphor is that of being grounded. It is an architectural word which speaks of the laying of a foundation. It is the firm base upon which all else will stand. As Christ is the foundation, which is recorded in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, then it is he, Jesus Christ, who is the full and complete support for all that we do in our Christian lives. Paul uses the same mixture of the tree and foundation terminology again later when we get to Colossians chapter 2, but I'll read it to you now so that when we get there in a couple of weeks, you can be excited to say, I heard that just recently. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7. So there you go. Same terminology. He's repeating himself, but he always expands on what he says as well. He's not just, he doesn't write just one letter to one group of people and say the same thing and then, okay, I'm done. Paul develops his theology very carefully for the church and the needs of that particular church. 
Finally, the metaphor of this uniting of the roots and the foundation is said to be in love. This is certainly referring to the vertical love towards God in Christ, as well as the horizontal love of the believer towards other believers. When a tree is rooted and reaches out its branches, it receives the sunshine by which it continues to grow in strength and in vitality. This is the same concept which is being expressed for the believer concerning love. Our foundation is set, but our growth will only be fully productive, excuse me, fully productive as we are guided in love. Life application. Christ is with us, dwelling in us from the moment that we receive him. That's uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. God has done a marvelous thing for us through the person of Jesus by reconciling us to himself. And even more, he has not left us as orphans. Rather, he continues to reside with us through his spirit. The access is granted at any and all times if we simply appropriate what he has given us. Let us yield ourselves to God at all times and open this fount of spiritual blessing. Okay, I want to go back because it came to mind. One of the two videos we watched, I liked it more than the other one last night. It was the first one that uh, a guy was a gardener, and he talked about his relationship with uh, understanding the, uh, how are we doing there? the uh, understanding the nature of God through gardening. And he went through the Bible and he uh, uh, talked about the uh, garden as a central point all the way through the Bible. And you will see that, you know, it started in the garden. It ends in the garden. Jesus is in the garden. But there's also gardening and landing and tilling all through the Bible as well. And so it was really, it was a great, uh, I'd seen it before, but it was a great episode of Is Genesis History, okay? And they were talking about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I just want to get this point out because it's important to remember this. A lot of people say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not actual history. They're, uh, you know, they're kind of like metaphor or they're analogy or something. And it's about the time of Genesis 11 when Abraham is called, it becomes a real narrative and real people and real things are happening. But before that, it's not. And the guy said something that is obvious, but it's good to, repeat it again. If you deny or you allegorize or you make in the metaphor or whatever the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you destroy almost every principal tenet of scripture. Almost every one of them. If you think about it, the fall of man, okay, which means original sin, is obliterated when you get rid of Genesis 1 through 3. If you get rid of that and you no longer have original sin, you no longer have anything that Paul wrote in Romans or 1 Corinthians about our need for Christ. It's done. And you can get rid of uh, salvation. You can get rid, you can throw out almost every major doctrine of Scripture if you allegorize the first 11 chapters of Scripture. You're saying, if you say that man was evolving from something else, as you know uh, evolutionists do, or if you try to accommodate that into there, there's no point at which man fell that is true within Scripture, okay? The Bible documents that God created one man and that man fell, okay? If that is not the true story, where is the true story? Where did sin enter the world? Everybody see that? There's no point where we can say this is a reliable account of how sin entered the world, and therefore we do not need Jesus. 
I don't care what anybody tells you. Oh, that's not true. The, the doctrine is sound because Paul writes about it. I'm soft. Sorry. Paul writes about a man named... No, no, the guy you were writing about today, uh, a week ago to me. You asked some questions about him. Oh, Adam. Adam. <laughs> Paul writes about a man named Adam. If Paul is writing about a man who is not real, then we have no foundation for what Paul says. You can take every single word of Paul about that issue in 1 Corinthians and also uh, in Romans, because he alludes to it, even if he doesn't say it directly. You can take all of it and throw it away. And guess what? If Paul is wrong on those issues, then all of Paul's letters are wrong. You can take everything about Paul and throw it away. And if you throw Paul away, then you have to throw away Peter, because Peter says that Paul's words are inspired of God. Get rid of them. If you've gotten rid of Peter, then you need to get rid of Mark, because Mark is dependent on Peter, okay? And if you get rid of Mark, then you have to get rid of Matthew and Luke, because Matthew and Luke are synoptic gospels, which rely heavily on each other to develop a theme. They're gone. And if you've gotten rid of those, then you need to get rid of the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is also written by a guy named Luke, okay? Everything falls apart if you get rid of the literal historical account. Six days of creation, six literal days of creation. Not, this is speaking of epics or, I'm sorry, it does not work that way. When it says evening and morning were the first day, you can take that no other way. You cannot take that from a biblical perspective in any other way than one day, okay? You can use the term day in a billion different ways. The day of the Lord is how long? Anybody know how long the day of the Lord is? Well, it can be a thousand years. It can be seven years. It can be a day. It's all through the Bible. It, and the word is yom. It means day. So people will say, well, day in the Genesis account is could be any amount of time because the day of the Lord could be any amount of time. It does not work that way because you have in morning, I'm sorry, an evening and a morning, one day. Okay. And it's specific in the, the first day of creation. It says, I think it's a yom echad, or maybe it's a, yeah, yom echad, day one. There is no way to get around that without literally obliterating the entire narrative of the Bible. So if you hear that, or if you believe that, you need to get your theology straightened out. You are damaging your own theology, and you're damaging anybody that you're talking to about what you think you believe when you say that the Bible does not need to be literal in Genesis 1, 2, 3, all the way through 11. It is a historical account, and when it records the days of the lives of Adam in Genesis 5, and then Seth, and then all of the other people, Lamech and Methuselah, and they are literal people that literally lived, and God is showing us that he expects us to understand those accounts as literal. And as I said, if you don't, or if you teach otherwise, or if you think you believe otherwise, you can throw out the rest of the Bible, because the rest of the Bible hinges on what it says in the Genesis narrative. It hinges on it. It's not, oh, we can build our own theology without that. You cannot. Your own theology is damaged irreparably because of that. So please remember that. I'm not going to argue with you. Please don't email me and say, here's why you're wrong. I will email you back and I'll show you why you are wrong. I've got all the information I need to show you where you are wrong in your theology. So don't bother with it. Just trust me on this and go back and study those 11 chapters, and then think about what Paul is writing when he quotes people and places and events and say, how can you reconcile the, the, re, uh, the redemption of man 
if there was no original fall in the first place or if that account isn't true. You can't do it. Anyway, so I, I, I just don't want to argue with people over that, but I will never teach anything other than that, ever. This is a literal word given by God, and he expects us to believe it as literal. And I'll tell you something. If I die and am taken up to glory, I believe I am because Christ died for my sins, and I stand before him and he says, Charlie, you know what? You were wrong. It was 15 billion years for me to create the universe. I'll say, I was wrong, but I haven't lost anything. But if I get up there, and I've been teaching all along that it's a long series of epics and that the first 11 chapters are metaphor or allegory, guess what? There is ramifications for that, and God will be displeased. You haven't lost anything if you believe in the literal six-day creation. You've lost nothing, because that's what he told us. But if you teach otherwise and you're wrong, you will have lost a lot when you stand before the Lord. Please remember that. Yeah, when? Oh, I know. I'm, I said if because die. I know I'm going to be there. It'll be either rapture or death. I'm just saying, you know, the rapture could be a thousand years from now. It could be tomorrow. That's why I say if. I could be rapture. I wasn't saying that I'm not going to die someday. I Listen, if I could punch my ticket today, I'd be gone. Okay. If I get there, you said. Oh, no, no. I said I am going to get there because Christ died for my sins. I believe that. No, I was I was talking about the, the contingency of okay. death. Yeah. Anyway, I know I'm going to heaven, you know, it, it, unless this book is not true. If it's not, then it doesn't matter. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why would I be sitting here teaching people that I believe this book if I didn't believe it was literally true? I don't understand how anybody could come to that conclusion, but please understand that you have lost nothing if you teach a literal six-day creation. You've lost nothing because that's what he told us, okay? You lose much but if you teach that, otherwise. That they would do that because, okay, granted uh, evolution and all that other Please speak louder. Shove down, yeah. shove down our throats. It's not true. Right. But if you're doubting Genesis 1 through 11, you really have to doubt everything all the way up until Moses' life because Absolutely. he was the one who, who said this is what happened before. That's me. right. Moses recorded it. So That's right. right. So, so it, all it, that. Everything. Well, and that's the same logic as, as Paul. You have to throw out Paul. You have to throw out Moses too. Right. Everything. Everything hinges on those first chapters of Genesis. Everything. Everything that you believe, every single major doctrine in Scripture comes into focus because God put that first. He told us how he did it. He told us the order in which he did it. He told us everything we need to know. And what he didn't tell us, we don't need to worry about. All we need to do is focus on what he has given us and say, I accept this as literal. Go ahead. question. Yeah. What was the first man that God ever gave uh, You shall, uh, yeah. yeah um, Oh, well, no, that wasn't a command. That was, uh, it, it, hang on, let me go back there. Um, yeah, it's, hang on, hang on. Here's what it says. It says, um, uh, I want to make sure I get this. Yeah, it says here, um, uh, he put it, formed him in the ground, and he, uh, the Lord God, and then it says, then the Lord God put the man, uh, took the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. It doesn't, it's not an actual command, but it's, it, it's a prescription. You're right, okay? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you've got a prescription. This is what you are to do. And here is your command forbidding you one part of what you are to do. So you're right about that. Absolutely. And if that isn't literal and true, then we have a serious problem with everything else. And guess what? Jesus refers to an Abel, a guy named Abel, right? If there's an Abel, there's an, there's an Adam, 
right? Because Abel came from, yeah, that's right. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't speak of Adam, okay? Paul speaks of Jesus as the second Adam. But if Jesus speaks of an Abel, and Abel is only recorded in this account in Genesis chapter 4, and there is an Abel, then there must have been an Adam, right? Okay, so there you go. Everything, everything comes into uh, play if you deny a literal interpretation of the first 11 chapters was of the Bible. Was that prescription to tend the garden, or was it? It just says that he is, he put him in there to do it. It doesn't say that he didn't order him to right. do it. It just says that he put him in there to tend and keep it. That's all it says. When we go back to the are we to end it, or are we to pray? No, yeah, no, you'd have to go back. What he's asking about is, if you go back and watch the sermon that I did on that particular passage, the Hebrew, there is a uh, uh, a conflict. If you say to tend and keep the garden, it doesn't, it, there's a gender mismatch. Um, the guy that I uh, studied under at Southern Evangelical Seminary, Th Dr. Thomas Howe, um, wrote a paper, which I used in my sermon on that, that it should be translated as instead of tend and keep the garden, it should be uh, translated as to worship and to serve. And that's actually confirmed if you go to the last page of the Bible, because on the last page of the Bible, we will do two things. What are they? To worship and serve, okay? Everything that was lost is regained, okay? Everything. And so the translation, I know everybody says it is tend and keep, but it doesn't make any point because it says that God rested the man in the garden. He placed him in the garden using a, a word that means to rest. So I'm not going to get into that right now, but go back and watch that sermon and you will see that originally, why would man have to tend the garden? It doesn't make any sense. The Lord made the garden and he put him in there. He put him in there for a reason and that was to fellowship with the man. Okay. And so he was placed there to worship and serve the creator. Go back and watch the sermon, and you, you'll see that. Anyway, um, don't remember where I was, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Um, uh, did I say that? Uh, yes, I did. Life application, and we've got, yeah, we got time for 318. Go ahead. Great. Very good, too. May have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, high, and how deep is the love of Christ. Okay, yeah. Um, it, this one actually stops. It, it uh, stops verse 19. May be able to compare comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, length and depth and height and stops right there so i know it just it, they have to fit it in and uh so anyway okay it, we'll just stop with that one this verse should be placed with the previous verse to get a fuller understanding so i'm going to do again what I, he's got this one long sentence that he's been yeah, giving us and so you have to kind of take it and more than just a single verse to remember what you're talking about so here it goes that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. He conditions the fourfold aspect of this verse on the points of being rooted and grounded in love, okay, of the previous verse. That was his words of the, uh, that was his words of the previous verse, being rooted and grounded in love. By being so firmly set, he petitions that we may then be able to comprehend with all the saints. That's Paul's words. It is a call for universal understanding. The Ephesians are being addressed, but the letter is inclusive of all believers, including us here because we're reading the book of Ephesians. He petitions for Jew and Gentile alike to comprehend, and then he says it, what is the width and length and depth and height. As the English, so in the Greek. An article only precedes the first of the four words, the width 
and length and depth and height. Because of this, Paul is giving the idea of infinite vastness, something actually unattainable. It expresses the totality of what he is speaking of. We are not to place our minds on one aspect of it as if he said the width and the length and the depth and the height. He's speaking in a incomplete aspect without any articles to let you try to think of what is the infinite, even though obviously we can't. He says the width and length and depth and height. It expresses the totality of what he is speaking of. We are not to place our minds on one aspect of it, but on the entirety of it. The question, however, is, what is Paul speaking of? There is no noun or pronoun given which indicates possession or close association to the words in this clause, meaning it is a genitive. Some translations tie it directly to the next clause, which speaks of the love of Christ. This seems likely on the surface, but why then didn't he just say that? Charles Ellicott wisely notes the following. He says, Various answers have been given, but as St. Paul has obviously has obviously of set purpose omitted all definition, leaving the phrase incomplete in absolute generality, no answer can be perfectly satisfactory. In other words, Paul purposefully left off what was on his mind, as if his words could not even describe what he was thinking of. It is as if he was writing to make a point about something, and then he stopped, and he simply stumbled over what he was trying to explain. We do that too. When we're talking about something really vast, and we'll say, well, it's just, it's so broad, and it's so amazing, and it's so, and then we just stop, and you don't know what you're talking about. Paul is trying to convey something that he is not able to properly convey, and so he just leaves it hanging. And so he just left it unsaid. This is probably referring to the totality of everything that God has done for us in Christ, to include the wisdom behind it, the knowledge of what has been done and is to come, the love involved in the cross to redeem his people, the splendor of the resurrection, the fact that both Jew and Gentile are included in the plan, the word which has been given to explain it, the giving of the Holy Spirit to seal it upon our faith, and on and on. And he's speaking of everything. He's brought up all of these points, and he's just writing out, and he suddenly says, to understand this magnificent thing. And you think, what thing? He's speaking of everything, everything that God has done in Christ. But to support that, which is interesting, is that all matter that can be measured has only three dimensions. That's right. He mentions four. Well, no, no. There are three aspects. There's time, space, and matter. But right. space has four aspects, length, length and breadth, width and, and width, and height. Which is four. Okay. There's four things here. Uh, so you, you, well, I'm just saying, it's like that's the enormity of it. It's like, you know... It actually, because he, he says, okay, uh, how wide, okay. long, high, deep. Okay. Well, deep is, yeah, okay. It's it's not, there absolutely. Is yeah, but depth, <laughs> That's okay. Enormity. Yeah, I, it is enormity. So there you go. Okay. Um, you might pull closer when you're talking, because I don't know if they can hear you, and I do not want people to email me and say they can't hear you. So if you pull closer, I'll be a lot happier. I just will. Okay. Or I could be uh, quiet. Well, you could do that too, but I just don't want people emailing me and say, I can't hear Jim. Please have him move closer. Okay. So, uh, but when you talk, please talk as loudly as you can yes, because I, every week I get an email from somebody about something and I, I'm trying to take care of these issues, but I can't always do it. So, anyway, um, read that again. Uh, no, I'm not going to read that again. Yes, I will. And so he just left it unsaid. Thus, it probably is referring to, I'm going to read the entire thing that I just said, the totality of everything that God has done in Christ for us. 
to include the wisdom behind it, the knowledge of what has been done and is to come, the love involved in the cross to redeem his people, the splendor of the resurrection, the fact that both Jew and Gentile are included in the plan, the word which has been given to explain it, the giving of the Holy Spirit to seal it upon our faith, and on and on. Everything that Paul can think of is included in this expression that he says. Paul simply stopped, gasped, and then wrote about what is otherwise impossible to express. And then, in essence, he says, I hope you will be able to grasp the infinite majesty of this redemptive process in all its varied aspects. How then can we comprehend what is incomprehensible? How can we apprehend that which cannot be seized? How can we attain to that which is out of reach? The answer is that we cannot, but we should strive to do so. Our highest joy should be searching out the mystery of God's workings in and through his creation in order to redeem man. We should ponder the imponderable love of God. We should seek out God's infinite wisdom. We should read his word. We should yield to his spirit and cling to Christ's cross. This is what Paul would ask for us to do. Life application. Fix your eyes on Jesus. All things come into clear and understandable, even if not fully attainable, terms when we do this. This is what God would ask us to do. This is what Paul asks us to do concerning God, is to think about him, to meditate on him. And guess what? I said this, I think, last week in this class. It might have been talking to somebody else, but we have forever, we have forever and forever and forever to search out the wisdom of God and the riches of God, and we will never do it. And, you know, you, you could say, okay, well, we've got 50 billion years, okay? We've only been alive here 50, 60 years, most of us, 70, 80 years, whatever, okay? And we think we've got a lot more we could learn. If we had 50 billion years, how much more could we learn? And if we had everything up to just less than an infinite, guess what? We still have an infinite amount more to learn because you can never attain to an infinite. That is what God offers us if we will simply start right now if we will pursue God, and if we are willing to say, I want to know this wonderful creator, and I give my life to Jesus. That is the marvel of what he's doing. So, um, where am I now? Romans 12, What's that? Read Romans 12, 36. Okay, I'm going to read that, and then we got to quit, because I didn't realize we've only got a couple minutes left. Romans what? 12. Okay, Romans, oh, excuse me, 11. 11. Okay, Romans 11, and what? 33 Romans 11, 33 through 36. Burke wants us to close. Oh, yes. That's a good verse to close out with today. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Good words. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to look into this wonderful word. We thank you for it. It's so precious. And we just long for the day when we can know you more. And we can start that right now, can't we? If we'll just apply ourselves and if we'll just open this word and search it out, we can know you more and we can have a closer fellowship with you. And Lord, in the process of it, help us not to get so bogged down in study that we forget the primary focus of what we are to do, which is to praise you. 
You are infinitely worthy of our praise, and we probably don't give enough to you on any moment of our existence, but help us to remember to do it and to just thank you and praise you and be grateful for what you have given us in the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Oh, we pray it in his name. Amen. I'm glad you stopped me because I was going to start another verse and we would have gone over and then I would have had Mike yelling at me. Okay, here we go. We got to back this thing up, right? Okay.